I'm Pastor Mike Winger, and this is Bible Thinker, the program dedicated to thinking biblically about everything. And welcome to the Tuesday live stream. I'm going to take your guys' questions, whatever you want to ask me about related to theology, apologetics, that kind of stuff. If you're watching this video after the live stream, check um, below in the description and the first comment on the video, because what we hope to do, and I, I could use your guys' help with this, is we hope to create a um, selection of questions. So we'll, we'll write a list of the questions and timestamps to where each of those questions is addressed in today's live stream. So um, that, I just want to put that out there right away because I want this this video to be as useful as possible to you. Um, you might want to watch all the way through. You might want to just find the questions you're most interested in. And here's, here's your chance, guys. Um, you send me questions all the time, and I love answering questions, but I don't always have the chance to, to answer them because there's just so many um, coming in. It's kind of like a, a, a mixed blessing. You know, it's like, I love it, but I, I grieve that I'm not able to respond to all the messages and things like that. So occasionally we do this, this Q and a, the, um, the live stream is just a Q and a to answer your questions. I have no agenda other than that. So if you're going to ask a question, put it in the live chat and put the letter Q, capital letter Q. I have put a little bit of a delay, like a 30 second chat delay on there, just so that it makes it easier for the moderators to like view those questions. So they don't fly by too quick. And, um, um, yeah, and basically, let's see, uh, AJ's already sending me over, so let me just get that set up, and um, I'll be able to actually go to the Bible. I got the software set up here, so I can actually go to the Bible and hopefully give you the best answers I can. If I don't know the answer to one of your questions, I have a plan, I have an agenda, I have a special secret weapon. I just tell you I don't know, because, <laughs> because I'm not into making stuff up. Um, but I will do my best. Here's at least what my opinion is on these things, and hopefully I can point you in a biblical direction and answer those questions and point you, if, if you're not a believer and you have a, a tough question uh, about Christianity, hopefully I can point you to Christ and the truthfulness of Christ. It's not just this hokey uh, thing that somehow mysteriously has endured through the generations. Rather, it's it's the truth. At the core of it, it's just true. So <clears throat> question number one, um, here it is from Our Wholesome Home. I'm torn up over the abortion rulings lately. I'm involved in a pro-life ministry, but still feel so upset. How does a Christian not let this evil consume their mind? Um, boy, that's a that's a rough question, and I I get it. Um, here's the thing that I do, because sometimes issues they they may seem like they matter to everybody, or at least matter to a lot of people, but to some of us they matter a lot more. Like this just hits deep in your heart. It's overwhelming to you. It's overcoming other considerations. It's just like this constant, almost obsessive thought in your mind dealing with this issue of abortion. And it's, and the thing is, this issue is a big enough deal to obsess over it. I agree with you there. Um, so what I'm going to encourage you to do is, is try to try to be productive in that, right? Don't just be anxious about it because we don't want to be anxious in anything, but in everything through prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. My counsel to you is, the first counsel is prayer is every time you feel consumed with concern, pray over the issue. Pray for the community around you. Pray for the, the, the people who are considering having abortions. Pray for the laws. Pray for the awareness, the conscience of our culture that is so seared on the topic of abortion. To have that callous ripped off that we would be sensitive to the issue of the lives of these precious children. Um, pray, pray, pray. Um, but then also consider this, that maybe you're maybe you're feeling consumed by this topic is so that you can you can be motivated and continue to have an impact in this pro-life ministry or even in another capacity. So um, for me, this happened when it came to the issue of uh, homosexuality during the um, the uh, the ruling we had from the Supreme Court a, f a couple three years ago, 
or so. And so I actually did a, a four-part series called Homosexuality, Speaking the Truth in Love. And I did a great deal of research and taught that content online. Hope, And it was it was feeling like this was such a big deal and it was, it was hurting people, um, hurting gay people. Um, and, and just anyway, just causing so many problems that I thought I, I want to help. I want to do something useful in this. And that drove me to make that series. So maybe it'll, maybe it'll be a motivator for you. But in the end, I want you to also encourage yourself with this, that G- Jesus said, be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. Um, and he has overcome the world. And he, and he, we know the end of the story and we have to keep this in mind because it is hope that anchors our souls. It's not grief and it's not fear. And it's not even the awareness of the sin of the world, but it's the awareness of the goodness and the glory that's coming that anchors our hearts and souls. Remind yourself of this and be able to even pray with those scriptures in your mind. So the second question here is from Colton Blonda, um, which is, Hey Mike, I believe the Trinity, um, but in Mark 13, 32, it says that Jesus does not know the hour and only the father does. How can this be true? Is Jesus God, if Jesus is God. So let's go to that passage in Mark. Let me pull it up. Um, so this, this passage is Jesus talking about the second coming and, and he says himself, you know, we know Jesus, his title for himself was, was the son, the son of man that he called himself, the son called God, the father, he called himself the son of God. So when he says the son here, he's talking about himself. Um, he says, but concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the son, but only the father. So when he says day or hour, what he's, it seems that he's probably talking about the timing of, of his coming. When is Jesus going to show up? The second coming going to happen. And, and of that moment of, he knows details about the coming because he describes it in this passage in Mark 13, but of the timing of the coming, the when, not the what, but the when, that's what he says, no one knows. Um, and, uh, so then the question is, why does the son not know this? Um, if, if he's God. And I think that part of the answer here is understanding that in the humanity of Jesus, there was, at least in some sense, things Jesus didn't know. Now, this is not, this is not to me in any way threatening him in his deity. And I'll explain in a minute, but first let me build the case for it being, there being not only this, but even other things Jesus didn't know. So when Jesus was like an infant in the womb, did he know, um, Chinese? Right. Or did he know um, Einstein's theory of relativity? Right. As an infant in the womb. Well, I mean, I could say with that infant brain, there's no way that infant brain knew it. But the immaterial, you know, deity, you know, God knows all those things. But the question isn't, isn't does God know it? But this in his humanity, is he aware of everything that that he in his deity knows? And I think that's where the answer is no. He's in fact in Luke it says that he was grow he grew in wisdom grew in wisdom. Um, I think it's in Luke chapter two. I don't know if I want to be hunting around for the passage. Um, the significance of this is that if Jesus actually grew in wisdom, I'm skimming through. Um, there it is. Luke 2.52. It says, And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Well, obviously, you know, God cannot increase in wisdom. But Jesus, he's not just deity. He's also humanity. And in his humanity, he grew taller, he grew stronger, and he grew in wisdom. And so he had limited access to his omniscience. Yet there's other times in scripture where Jesus knows what's in the heart of man. 
So we have these things where Jesus has supernatural knowledge about what's inside the heart of man. Yet, there's other there's things that he just knows naturally. So Jesus, it seems, while he had some kind of supernatural access to knowledge, he did not access that knowledge all the time. Just, and here's a good parallel. So omniscience, he has access to it, but it's parceled out by the will of the Father. He also has access to omnipotence, all power, yet he doesn't always exercise it. He curses a fig tree, but he only does that which the Father shows him. He limits the use of his power to that which the Father shows him to do. So it's <clears throat> it's part of the exercise of the humanity of Christ that he didn't know everything all the time in his humanity. Um, now, another debate is, did, did he then, after the fact, did he then know all things after... Um, after his death and resurrection, after his glorification, was that limit taken off? And I am inclined to think, yes, the limit was taken off. In Acts chapter 1, he's, he's asked again about the timing of his coming. And this time he doesn't say, no one knows, including me. He just says to the disciples, it's not given to you to know the times or the season uh, that the Father has set in his own authority. So that may imply that he, he knows after the fact. So I would just say that um, these limitations, the limitations on, of, of a human are genuine limitations that Jesus willfully accepted upon himself as part of coming in human form. But his nature of being God does not depend on his constant exercise of omniscience and omnipotence. Um, that might be a little complicated, but there's, I hope that answer helps you out. Um, okay, let's um, look at the, the next question. Okay, from uh, Holly Ann, she says, I'm reading through Job and the beginning where his friends are talking, I don't understand. I understand what Job says. Can you explain what his friends are talking about just so I have some background? Well, Holly Ann, I'll give it a shot just off the top of my head. There's there's really, Job is really, uh, it's good to just read it with a commentary um, that I would recommend considering getting a commentary or maybe a couple different commentaries because all commentaries act like they all are perfectly right in all their interpretations. <laughs> so it's nice to hear more than one. But, uh, but basically, Job's friends, uh, when they finally break their silence, after Job, he's been stricken, and he's been suffering, and they sit with him in silence for a while. They finally break their silence, and um, they break their silence in response to Job, and he's basically complaining. He's like, this, why is this happening to me? And they feel bothered because they seem to be assuming throughout the book, Job, this stuff is only happening to you because you did something wrong. So their conversation between him and jo them and Job is kind of them saying, Job, here's our case for why you deserve what happened to you. And then Job's like, no, I don't, no, I don't. And they're like, yes, you do, yes, you do. And that's kind of a, a generic summary of the back and forth they have. At the very end, God shows up at the end of Job and he rebukes all of them, except for Elihu, who doesn't even speak till the end of the book. He doesn't rebuke him, but he rebukes the rest of them. And he says that they were, they were, they were fools. Basically, they gave bad advice and um, uh, including Job. And so we, we have to interpret Job carefully because here we have the record of these guys saying things, which is later rebuked by God. It doesn't mean everything they say is wrong, but it does mean you've got to be thoughtful and careful about how you interpret it. Um, Kathy Jenkins says, hi, Mike, can you please differentiate between the law and the commandments? Thanks. Um, so the word law, Torah, it, it actually means instruction. And so law is in a sense it is commandment sometimes these words are interchangeable like in psalm 119 they're they're used like in like synonyms laws and commandments um but when i when i'm referring to um god's commandments and i'm referring to like with a capital c i'm, I'm talking about like the law of moses then i'm referring to like specifically like these 613 laws and i could say the commandments of god i could be referring to also that same set of laws it all depends on context 
Other times, God commands people to do things. And those commandments, they're not in the Torah. They're just things God, you know, God commands Jeremiah, go do this. Ezekiel, go do that. It's a God's commandment, but they don't consider it part of his commandments. Um, so in another sense, we also look at the Ten Commandments. We, we consider that another different use of the word commandments. This is the Ten. This is not, it's part, it's within the Torah, but it's not all of the Torah by any means. And so we would call those the Ten Commandments, um, or you might call them the commandments. So we use those words. Even in scripture, they're used in a variety of ways, and it's the context of the verses around it that will tell you what it means. So kind of know there's a variety of you know meanings there, and you read the context to figure out which one it might have in mind. Um, okay, uh, number five, the Gentile or the gentle reptile. <laughs> I almost read the Gentile reptile. <laughs> the gentle reptile says, um, how do you def defend the Trinity when Jehovah's Witnesses challenge me. How do I defend it? Uh, I need Bible verses and scripture. Actually, if somebody in the live chat could do me a favor for the gentle reptile and, and take my, get my video. I just did a teaching on the Trinity. And, and the thing is I'm answering Jehovah's witness questions in that teaching. So full on teaching. And if someone could just put that in the live chat, put a link there for the gentle reptile, check it out. It's it, that video is doing really well. It's got like 25,000 views already. It's getting a lot more views daily. And the reason is because I, I, I'm not just talking about the Trinity. I'm answering the questions that the cults and Muslims and these different groups ask about the Trinity. So that should equip you for those conversations in really good ways. Um, yeah. What, what trips you up is when they ask you questions you've never thought of before, or they go to passages you haven't studied carefully before. So this will help you. This will prepare you with those questions and answers and those, those things. So, um, Hopefully someone will be able to find that. Ah, there it is. Rock and roll. Put it in there. Thank you, rock and roll. I very much appreciate it. So you can just click that link and it will take you right to it. Uh, Josie J says, can you give some examples of what it means that we are created in the image of God? How do we reflect God's image? Um, this is like a really big topic and I'm not totally settled on it, right? So let me start by like <clears throat> bedrock things. Sometimes when you have complicated issues, it's, it's nice to stop start with like a bedrock. Here's what we can sort of rest on and start with as like a common ground here. Being made in the image of God has something to do with, um, with, with our value. Um, it has something to do with our value and it sets us apart from all other created things. So for instance, mankind, according in Genesis after the flood, God gives rules to all of mankind there. And he says to them like, Hey, yeah, you can eat of these animals and that sort of thing. But, but if you shed the blood of a man, your blood will be shed by man. And he's kind of giving legal rights, you know, divine authority to human, in a sense, human governments to give, to give out the death penalty for death. I, I won't get into the death penalty, but that's, that's the text. And, um, <clears throat> the reason for it is, is because, and it says in Genesis there, because we were made in God's image because God made man in his image, you know, and, and then in Genesis, early in Genesis, we have another connection. So, so it has to do with the value of man. I'm in his image, so I'm valuable. So you can't just, you can't kill me. You have no rights to kill me. You know, I have a right to life, which is also an abortion related issue. Um, and then another issue is in Genesis one, it says that God made man in his image. And then he sets man over with dominion over the earth, over the animals and over the creeping things and over all the stuff in the earth. So us being in his image is the thing that gives us the ability to, to take authority over the earth. Now we're still responsible for being, being wise and being good stewards of, of that, which we've been given dominion over, but we're given dominion. So we have this authority and we have this value and we have these human rights that stem from being made in God's image. 
It's interesting that Christianity gives a foundation for human rights, a foundation for human value. I'm not just like an advanced evolved species, merely, you know, <clears throat> different than a monkey, merely in degrees of intelligence or something like that. That's not the case. I'm actually made in God's image. Okay, that's the common ground. Now, building on that, the question is, what qualities in my in, in humanity are the things that we would say are, that's God's image? Is it that I'm eternal? Is it that my spirit is eternal and I will not die? Unlike the, you know, my physical body will die, but I will live on eternally in some, in some form or another. Um, is that the element? Because it's not, doesn't seem to be true for animals. Um, is it the, as some theologians say, the incommunicable attributes of God versus the communicable attributes? I mean, there's certain qualities God has that he can give to us. And this is where it gets a little complicated and I don't have <clears throat> um, an answer I feel confident about yet. So, um, so I, I wanted to give you at least a bedrock there. Some, even some theologians would say being in the image of God is not about who we are. It's not any um, noticeable thing about us. It's just a status thing. Hey, you, you're in the image of God. Like stamp, you're in the image of God. <clears throat> what we are convinced though, it's not about our physical image. It's not like God is bearded, right? It's not, it's not like God has eyes and, and hands and, and teeth and things like this. No, otherwise Jesus never would have had to come as a man. He could have just come as God if God's in a physical body like that. That would be like a Mormon theology kind of thing. Um, yeah, so hopefully it helped you out somewhat there, Josie. Uh, the next question is, <clears throat> from insects are cool, where is the, the Trinity in the Gospel of Mark? Um, that's a great question. I don't have off the top of my head a good answer for that right now. I, I have to sit and ponder that for a little bit. But this is a great time for me to make an announcement <laughs> that you might be interested in insects are cool. Uh, which is that I think what I'm going to be doing in the future here, um, when I'm done with this Jesus in the Old Testament series that I've been doing uh, weekly, is I'm going to do a series on the Gospel of Mark. And I want to cover the theology and apologetics debates that, that are throughout the Gospel of Mark, including questions like, where is the Trinity in the Gospel of Mark? Or questions like, who is the author of Mark? When was Mark written? How do I know that the resurrection of Jesus is even in the gospel of Mark and wasn't a later invention. This is what some skeptics would say. Um, how do I know uh, that that the teachings of Jesus in Mark match with the teachings of Paul in the epistles? And like, I'm going to handle all those rough issues, but I also want to handle like the parables of Jesus and tough theological concerns like uh, the unpardonable sin. And there's just tons of stuff that we can do if we start with Mark and work through it, pausing and handling controversial or tough or, or, you know, I think relevant issues as we move through the gospel. And then, um, at the same time, just getting out the teachings of Jesus and hopefully God willing, you know, the accurate understanding of the text so that the word of God will uh, change our lives. So that's the plan moving forward. I, I hope that that's something that sounds exciting to you guys. <clears throat> um, what next? Brooke Ferguson asked a question. Um, how literally do you think we should read the Bible, especially concerning Genesis and the Old Testament? Um, I think that I like the, the adage. Um, they say the, if the plain sense makes sense, seek no other sense. I think it's a nice adage. When you say literal, I'm thinking plain sense. Um, so it's like, uh, and David, you know, took up a sling and, and, swung and it hit the stone hit Goliath in the head and he fell down like I'm not I'm not looking to sim to make this symbolic or I should say allegorical I'm thinking that David actually took up a sling he actually grabbed stones and he actually threw one at Goliath it actually hit him in the head so I take this as literal because it seems literal on the surface 
if uh, if I come to a passage like in Psalms where David says, I make my bed swim with tears, then I, I, I have to ask myself, does the plain sense make sense? So because now I'm visualizing a bed swimming like it's a Disney cartoon and there's a bed and it's swimming. And what is it swimming in? Well, it's swimming in a, a, a literal pool created by the tears of David which is pretty amazing when you think about it, you know, that he could do all that. So I, I would say that um, this is, this would be very impressive, you know, if it's, if it's literal, but in that case, it's obviously not literal. So if the plain sense makes sense, seek no other sense. Another way to put it is um, uh, read, uh, read it, read it like the newspaper, read it like you read anything else. Generally speaking, if you don't just read a verse, but you read a whole book, you read a whole chapter, you read a whole passage, you can usually tell when things are symbolic or metaphor because it's just indicated it's the way we talk right and it can be a little difficult because sometimes you're reading an ancient text and they had a little different little bit different ways of talking than us but generally speaking it's it's pretty obvious so if, if someone asks you as a christian do you take the bible literally um i think that there that kind of can be a trick question because i don't take david making his bed swim with tears literally but i don't think it was meant literally so i try to take it as it was intended if it was intended literally, I want to take it that way. If it was intended metaphorically, in out, you know, as like a symbolically um, poetic language, I want to take it however it was intended, and it's usually obvious in the passage. Um, Hannah Banana says, um, "How should I respond to someone who asks me when they should believe in Christianity and know uh, why they should believe in Christianity and no other religion?" Um, well, I think it's I think you could just tell people that it's unavoidable, right? Because if Christianity is true, then the other religions that would disagree with it are inevitably wrong. Like, I can't say Christianity is true and Hinduism is true because they have claims that are at odds with each other. They're incompatible, right? What I can say is I can say Christianity is true and um, In-N-Out makes good hamburgers because these claims aren't at odds with each other. I could say Christianity is true and In-N-Out makes terrible hamburgers. And that works fine because these claims are not at odds with each other. What I can't say is, I'll take Islam as an example. I can't say Christianity is true and Islam is true because Islam says that Jesus was never crucified and never resurrected. Whereas Christianity says the foundation of our faith is in the death and resurrection of Jesus. So if I say one of these is true, I'm automatically calling the other one false. Now, some people feel like that's being mean. And I think that they're just maybe thinking a little emotionally here and not just kind of thinking practically. Like, you know, it's like, hey, if uh, if I'm at home, then I'm I'm not in New York, right? Like, I'm not being rude. It's just, it's an if-then idea. And if Christianity is true, then things which, which, which contradict it are automatically false. Now, there are elements of truth within Islam, within Hinduism, within these other religions. Sure, like if, if a, a Muslim says, hey, Allah wants you to, to love your family and be a good father then I would be like, I affirm that, that's true. That's consistent with Christianity. But what I can't do is import the doctrines of Islam into Christianity and act like these two are compatible. So are there elements of truth in other religions? Sure, but they're not the significant elements that are the foundation of those religions. So it ends up being unhelpful. Um, See, so yeah, I, would, I, would, uh, I would encourage her to think it through like that. Uh, maybe find other examples that might help her out other than in and out <laughs> So I hope it helps you guys though. Um, Philip Rushing says, uh, what are your thoughts on the Nicene and Apostles' creeds? Um, <clears throat> I, you know, my short answer, Philip, is because I have a lot of questions, so I'm going to move a little quickly. 
Um, my short answer is is that I like them. Um, I, I don't necessarily always find them su totally sufficient. Um, I've recently read them and I thought <clears throat> I would add a few things to these things about like repentance and things like that that I think are really important and are part of the original preaching of the apostles. Um, but I like them and I, I think I can affirm them uh, happily um, as they are. Austin Avenaki says, I was baptized last Sunday and have, uh, cool man, congratulations, um, and have come to believe that baptism is an essential part of becoming a disciple. Since Christians equals disciples, shouldn't we obey Jesus's process of becoming a disciple? I would say it's essential in that we know it's clearly commanded. I agree with you. Like you are supposed to be baptized if you're a Christian. If, if you're a Christian and you intentionally wait and don't get baptized, I just want to say, um, just read the book of Acts or read any of the gospels and then go get baptized because this is clearly what the scripture is telling you to do. Read what Romans says about the meaning of baptism in like Romans six, you know, and look at these passages and then say, <clears throat> this is not about me submitting to which denomination I think I'm trying to pick a denomination. That's not what it's about. This is not about me saying that's the pastor. That's my favorite pastor from here on out. This is about me identifying with the death and resurrection of Jesus. And if you're on board with that, go get baptized. Please do it. Um, so I would agree with that. I do not think it saves. And I have a four hour long debate on my channel with a friend of mine, Dean, Dean Meadows. And we have a debate on the topic of baptism and is it needed for salvation? It, I don't think it's needed for salvation. I do think it's required for obedience to Christ though. And so um, you can look up that Mike Winger baptism debate and it'll pop right up. Um, so congratulations, Austin. Happy you got baptized. Um, Jasper uh, Mabanza says, um, Hi, Mike. What do you think of the new interpretation of governing body of Jehovah's Witnesses teaching that the king of the north in Daniel 11 represents the Russian government and its allies? Um, that's actually, here's, here's something interesting for you. That's not new. Um, <clears throat> it might be new to the JWs, but here's what I've learned about the JWs. This is actually kind of old. In fact, Here's how old it is, Jasper. Um, in the 70s, people were saying that the, the Russians, they were finding the Russians in like Daniel 11 and in passages that talk about like Gog and Magog and stuff like that and Rosh. And um, <clears throat> they were saying that this is that during the Cold War, 60s, 70s. They were like, this is all about Russia. Um, now, currently, more of those same guys that used to say that, they're now saying these things, the future predictive elements of prophecy are, they're not about Russia. They're about these Islamic nations. Um, so they've actually kind of shifted gears, but now the Jehovah's Witnesses, I guess, are picking up on this. I've learned this as I've read Jehovah's Witness literature. They borrow, now they will never tell their people this, but they borrow apologetics and theology from Christian sources. Then they present it like it's their own content, like they came up with it themselves. And um, and they basically plagiarize people in their magazines. I'm, I've read it myself where I'm like, hey, that's from Ravi Zacharias. And here it is in the JW's magazine, you know, all of a sudden. Um, so I think that they're just having a, a late reaction. Although I will say Daniel 11 is pretty much fulfilled prophecy in my opinion, and I wouldn't relate it to Russia. Um, so there's a lot of information for you there. <laughs> yeah. So I have a video on Daniel 11 as well. I go through it in detail. It is really, it is the most prophecy packed chapter in the entire Bible. Um, so, uh, Jenny Hussong, um, asked a question, says, hi, Mike. Um, hi, Jenny. Um, are we going to have free will in heaven? Um, here, I'm, I'm going to sound like Greg Kokel for a second, which I don't think is a bad thing. I think it's, if I do sound like Greg Kokel, I'm probably doing a good job. But um, Jenny Hussong, I think that um, we will have free will, 
but I do not think we will have any desires to sin. So let me explain. Currently, um, I, uh, I'm in Christ. So I have like the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. This has changed my life, right? I don't want sin like I did before. Now I grudgingly want sin. It's kind of different than before I was saved. I would just, I was just, it was, I was of one mind about sin. That was me before I was saved, right? Then I come to Christ and then all of a sudden I'm of two minds about this issue. Then I have the spirit and the flesh coexisting. And you've prayed that robot prayer. Guys prayed the robot prayer. God, just make me obey you. I give you permission. And he doesn't do it. But you would, you would gladly have him just remove any desire for sin from you. And you would happily say, yes, take it away, Lord. Well, I think that will happen in heaven. I think that this will be our eternal state. When, we are, when our bodies are glorified, when, as 1 Corinthians 15 says, when this corruption puts on incorruption, well, then we are going to be walking in holiness. That's why uh, when uh, 1 Peter, or is it 1 Peter, I believe, maybe 2 Peter, talks about the, uh, the new heavens and new earth, it describes them this way. When God will uh, destroy the current heavens and earth, burn it up, make a new heaven and new earth, wherein righteousness dwells. Well, righteousness is a behavior not only of the new heavens and new earth, but of the people who inhabit it. I will live righteously. And I won't wound my neighbor. I won't hurt people. I wouldn't gossip. I wouldn't backstab. I wouldn't lie. I wouldn't cheat or steal because I don't want to. So in a sense, I have free will, right? Because I can do whatever I want to do. I just, I don't want to sin. Now, the difference between this um, and and my understanding of Calvinism is why I would say this, this would sound Calvinistic to some people. I don't think it is. And here's why. Because I'm signing up for this of my own free will. I'm saying, yes, Lord, please answer this prayer. I choose you. I choose the new life. I reject the old life. I, when, I, when I receive Christ and I repent of the old life, I'm, I'm asking for this to be taken from me. And it will one day be gone. And I am so looking forward to not being tempted by sin anymore. I'm very excited about that aspect of the glorification that comes our way. We're going to be, you know, can you imagine how great it'll be to get along with people when there's no sin nature, no competition, no pride, no suspicion, no nothing, nothing, just love. Sounds good to me. Uh, Moon Pie has a question. Do you believe in once saved, always saved? Um, here's a question I do get a lot. And one day I'd like to be able to unpack it biblically and slowly, but I'll tell you briefly, I'm not certain on this topic. And so, um, you can, you can have an opinion on it and I encourage you to, to do so and to base it on scripture. I want to say once saved, always saved. I want to say that. And there's, and there's certain passages that, that lean me that way, right? Like Ephesians talks about how we're in Christ, the first three chapters of Ephesians, of Ephesians, um, and some stuff. Anyway, there's several verses that I go, yeah, yeah, that seems to lean that way. But there's some warnings and stuff in Hebrews, Hebrews 6, things like this, where I go, that's a challenge to me. And I don't know how to fairly understand all these passages together. So I don't want to take whatever respect you have for me and uh, recklessly teach something that I'm not yet confident on. So until I'm confident, I, I'm going to abstain from answering the question. I'm not afraid of what people would say about me. Um, I think people are mature enough to handle disagreement within the, within the body of Christ. I just, at least I pretend people are, <laughs> but, uh, I'm not ready to answer the question theologically on my own yet. So I, I'm sorry, uh, that I can't help you out there. Um, okay. Number 15, see you through says, how do you approach or deal with heretics and cults that try to recruit people on your college campus? I've recently ran into Jehovah's witnesses and the world mission society church of God. Um, 
I <clears throat> try to prepare the students for those people before they meet them. And it's tough because students don't care about those people until they meet them. That's the, that's the, the, the rough thing. So I try to, I try to prepare them ahead of time, but they are very interested in hearing about false religions and cults. If you have access to, to the young people you're talking about on the college campus, talk to them about Jehovah's Witnesses, talk to them about this mother God cult. I mean, you can call them World Mission Society, Church of God. It'll, it, it actually makes it easier if you just call them the mother God cult, because that's what they are. Um, <clears throat> now I, I have lots of videos online dealing with these topics and dealing with these issues. Those videos and those topics are things I've actually shared with the students at my church. So that's how I've prepared um, for them. I have that same stuff I've taught just with the youth um, that's not online, but but yeah, that, that's how I handle it. The other option is you wait till they meet them and then they call you and they're kind of in like worried mode. Like I had this really hard conversation and then you, then they're ready to hear it. Then they're listening and they're uh, hopefully soaking it up at that point. Um, so that that's kind of how I, I try to handle those things. Um, yeah, inoculate is the strategy there rather than um, protect them from ever hearing from these guys. Rather Take it head on. Because here's the truth, right? They're wrong. Jehovah's Witnesses, it's, it's the theology's wrong. The doctrines are wrong. The teaching is wrong. So we should run head on into those conversations. Um, the Mother God cult, we need to rescue them. They need to have us knocking on their doors, right? Not us afraid, hiding from them, knocking on our doors. We're an outreach faith, right? Christianity is, is all about outreach. So I want to be reaching out to them. And the cool thing about Mother God, Jehovah's Witnesses, or these other groups, they want to talk about the Bible with you. Yeah. And I live in California where no one wants to talk about me or talk with me about God or Christianity for that matter. But you know who does? The World Mission Society, Church of God people, the Jehovah's Witnesses, you know, the Mormons, they do. So that's kind of nice. It's like an open door for a conversation. Uh, number 17, Euro uh, Puranimi says, uh, do you think... Uh, what do you think about Luis de Molina and Molinism? Okay, so Moli Luis uh, de Molina, this is the guy that that, that is famous for, I guess, uh, fleshing out a concept called Molinism. I'm going to explain for the audience in case they don't know. Molinism is a um, something I've, I have get asked about a lot, actually, when I do Q&As. Um, so Molinism is basically um, a way of trying to reconcile God's sovereignty and man's free will. So I believe before I ever approach Molinism, I believe that God is totally sovereign and that man has genuine free will as regards choosing to accept or reject Jesus, choosing to accept or reject the gospel of Christ. When we hear the gospel, we can accept it or reject. It. That's my belief. That's my understanding. I think it's biblical. And, um, and Molina, this, this guy, he came up with, with something they've named after him Molinism. And it was basically a way of trying to understand how sovereignty and free will work together and make sense. And if I can try to give a summary real quick, um, this is probably too crude, but, um, but it's the idea that God, because he knows not only what will happen, but what would happen and could happen under any set of possible circumstances, he is able to orchestrate all events as well as allow genuine free will in those events. Uh, that's like the really brief version of like Molinism. Now I agree with that. I, I personally agree with that, but I agree with that because of my theology, not because I heard about Molinism. I heard about Molinism and I went, Hey, that agrees with the theology I, I think is biblical and under, understand. Now I haven't read Molina's work to say I can sign any kind of approval on everything he says. So I don't want to tie myself to him in any way, but I think that that's, um, I think that's accurate. So yeah, I'm, I'm favorable, generally favorable towards it. Um, and one, one thing to say is Luis 
Molina was a was a anti-reformer. He was a Catholic anti-reformer, so he's against the reform movement. But that doesn't mean that everything he says is automatically wrong. You know, I'm still like a Protestant in the classic sense of the word. That's what I am. But that doesn't mean that I have to disagree with everything a Catholic says automatically. <laughs> so that would be kind of a um, a an unwise position to take. It's, I'm just going to disagree with Catholics. Like Catholics holding up a sign that says like abortion is wrong for these reasons. Like, I don't have to disagree with that. I could agree with him completely and still say that I think the papacy is not found in scripture. And then I think that the, um, the Catholic explanation of the gospel is, is in error. You know, I can, I can do those things. Um, Rachel uh, Kenoshi says when finding a spouse, is there only the one person for us? How does this play in with free will? Also, does marriage have a meaning in the afterlife too, between spouses, not Jesus and the church? Okay. Totally get what you're saying there, Rachel. Um, you asked your question very carefully. So first part of your question. Um, I don't think there's only one. Controversial opinion here. <laughs> I don't think there's only one possible person for you to marry. And let me explain why. I'm glad you asked this question. Because I used to think there was, right? And it creates a lot of anxiety in you, doesn't it? Like as a single person, you're like, I better find the one. Because if I don't find the one, then I marry the wrong one. And then I'm stuck with a bad marriage. And then I'm worried my marriage will end in divorce or end in some kind of like unhappy experience in life. Um, but there's a few problems with this. For one, the Bible never says there's only one person for you to marry. We didn't get this idea from scripture. We didn't get the idea from scripture. We also don't get the idea that there's only one ministry you can serve in. There's only one career path you can pick. There's only one special thing that you have to do in life. And if you miss it, you're out of God's plan. And basically your life was kind of a waste. Like this is definitely not in the scripture. God um, is, is far more, God, how do I put this? He treats us with more flexibility than that. Yet he remains sovereign. So what we do have in scripture when it comes to marriage is principles. We have principles about marriage, about like the kind of person you marry. You want to be equally yoked. That is, they're a believer. You you look at Proverbs and as you read the description of what a wise person is, that's the person you not only want to be, but that's the person you want to marry, right? I want to marry a Proverbs type of person. Um, how it says, do not go with an angry man. Well, this is proverb to a young man about don't, don't be like a buddy with an angry guy. If, if he has a temper problem, don't marry him. Well, or don't, I mean, don't hang out with him. I say, don't marry him as well. This is like good advice for women. Don't marry a guy that has like some anger issue. Every guy is going to get angry at some point, but I'm, you know, I'm talking about like actual anger issues. Um, so I, I think that there's principles that we apply by, by that category. It means that if I'm applying principles, I look around me and I may see lots of ones, lots of the ones there's potentially that girl and that girl and that girl and that girl. And they all fit the bare bones, like wisdom that scripture has given me. And then I get to what? Pick. I get to pick. You you can actually pick. Yeah, because you're you're seeking first the kingdom of God. You're honoring the Lord in this marriage and this wedding and all these things. It also means your, your marriage is not guaranteed. It's not guaranteed to be fruitful. It's not guaranteed to be happy. No, you and the other person have to yield to God if you want to have that incredible marriage. If one of you doesn't do it, it might be a tough marriage. If both of you don't do it, it's going to fail. You know, bad things will happen. Um, but I think this liberates us. I think it frees us. And I think it makes us accountable for the choices we make on who we marry. I'm not blaming God. God, you told me they were the one. You told me they were the one. So you you should make this marriage work. God, like that is a very irresponsible way to do marriage. Because I've given up all my responsibilities and God's supposed to make it work. I'll, and I'll say this anecdotally, outside the scripture, anecdotally, as a youth pastor, 
I have seen, and if any of my former students are watching, you know this just as well as I do. I have seen lots of people go, God told me that that's the one and we're going to get married. God told me that she's the, he's the one. I've seen this lots of times. And every time I just thought, I don't think that's the Lord. I think that that's the heart of man that becomes obsessively in love with somebody, whether it's a good idea or not, right? And so interestingly enough, of all the people who told me they knew who they were going to marry, not a single one of them married that person. At that young age, they were infatuated and they wrapped this infatuation in their belief in God and they felt their heart and thought they were feeling the Lord's heart and then it made things worse instead of better. So I generally think, um, now that doesn't mean God can't tell you. God can absolutely tell you somebody's the one. Uh, God did not tell me my wife would had to be the one. I do think God spoke to me about it, but I think he told her, he told me she was a one, <laughs> which is consistent with what I'm teaching. Anyways, um, there's a lot more that can be said about that, but yeah. Um, you also had something else you asked there in that question. Um, uh, does marriage have a meaning in the afterlife? I think that in the afterlife, we don't forget our current relationships and we don't lose the connections we've built in this life. So I think forever me and my wife will have a, a special connection in the afterlife. Is that connection marriage? The answer is no. Jesus says in, in heaven, there's no... There is no marriage and there's no giving of marriage in heaven. So there, it's just that, that thing doesn't exist, right? So we have Christ in the church. That's the marriage. Here's the next question to ask though. Uh, is this a bad thing? Does this mean that me and my wife will be further apart when we're in heaven than we are today? And I think the answer is no. I think that the unity of the body of Christ is so great that even me and my wife will be closer in eternity than we are today. But it won't be exclusively just the two of us, like marriage, us and no one else. It'll be this incredible intimacy and closeness between all people. Um, and so I hope that that helps put that in context. This is my understanding for what it's worth. Uh, Rachel, no, that was you. Okay, Rachel, I got your question. Miss Holly says, in 1 Corinthians eleven sixteen, 16, uh, was women's covering their head a law and custom? Should women be covering their hair in this day and time? Are we wrong for not covering it? Um, I... I'm not going to be able to get into a whole explanation of it. It, it is really, really involved to try to understand this passage in, in all the context. One day I'll teach on it, Miss Holly. I'm sorry that that's not going to be today. What I will say is I don't think the head coverings binding upon us today. I could be wrong. I don't think it is though. And um, that's my bottom line understanding of it. Um, and, uh, and the passage is, 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 is a, is a difficult passage to understand because you, you think you get it and you keep reading and you go, but what about that past? What about that verse? What was Paul really getting at here? This is one of those things that's difficult to understand in the letters of Paul. At least it is to me. Um, so just being completely honest with you. Um, Meta Skipper asks the question, if you're familiar with the topic of aseity, that's God's self-existence. Um, I'd appreciate some clarity. How can God be prior to all abstract objects to be poetic? How can the one true God exist before the number one exists? Okay, so um, if, if you're into philosophy, you'll have to forgive me if I butcher this, but I'm going to do my best. <laughs> okay, divine aseity is God's existence, and not only that he exists, but that God is self-existent. He doesn't require anything else for his existence. He, he causes his own existence. That's probably a really clumsy way to put it, but it helps a guy like me understand it. Um, so he cause he, in a sense, causes his own existence. It, 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 though he's always existed. It's not like he didn't. And then he did exist. He's eternally always existent. 
simply by nature of who he is, right? He's, he's this, that incredible of a being. Um, so the next question is about abstract objects. So an abstract object is like, is not like, okay, a water bottle is not an abstract object, right? But the concept water bottle, well, that the concept itself doesn't actually exist in a physical form. It's like an abstract object. It's like an idea. The question is, does the concept literally exist? And that's the debate. I'm in the camp that abstract, abstract objects don't actually exist. Concepts themselves don't exist in some literal form of existence. So to answer your question uh, about the number one, the number one, if it's not, not written on a paper, but the actual number one, is it an abstract object? I would say, I don't think it is. I don't think it exists in the literal sense. So I don't have to account for its existence or when it came into existence. Um, so God simply exists. And the number one is not an existing thing. Um, and the first time you, you have the number one, it's written down somewhere, but it's not like this existent thing. There's others who think that there are um, abstract objects. And I think this is Platonism. And, um, and then I think they have to answer your question differently than I do. And, um, but I'm not them. So there, <laughs> so, so my way out of your question, Metaskipper is, is that I don't think the number one exists in that sense. So I don't have to account for its existence. God is the only eternal, uh, existent, uh, thing or being, um, eternal in both directions, eternal beyond time even. Okay. So Tobias, uh, Sedneff says, what is your view of Jesus's statement in John three thirteen that no one has ascended if Elijah did. Um, so uh, John 3.13, let's go to that passage. Sorry, I have to bring it up here. Oh, and now I have to reload the program because I just hit the wrong button. Okay, so John 3.13, Jesus is saying, no one is ascended unto the Father except the Son. And so, um, I don't know if I'm going to be able to answer this question as thoroughly as I'd like to off the, off the top of my head. Some of these questions, you know, in all honesty, it's sitting down and thinking about it and I go, Oh yeah. yeah, yeah. And it kind of like you recollect the different, I don't know, different important elements that you're trying to answer. But John three thirteen, it says, um, is that the passage? I think I got the wrong passage, John. Oh, here we go. Uh, no one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the son of man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the son of man must be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Um, uh, it, the, okay, so when he says no one has ascended, uh, it could be that he just, here's options. Okay, let's just look at options. It could be that he simply isn't referring to Elijah because he's talking about people who've gone up to heaven and then come back to deliver truth from heaven. Like no one's come with this much authority, right? You, you, any, any humans that have gone up and come back and I can give you God's authority. I mean, Moses, he went up a mountain and came back down. Um, Elijah, he, when he does ascend, ascend, or, you know, he's called up. He then doesn't come back to deliver any other information after that. That's one way of looking at it. Um, uh, that might be the way I would go on it, man. I'm trying to remember. I know there's more to give you on this, but it's just not coming to my mind. Yeah, I'm, I'm just going to have to have to give a pass on that. If, if I think of, I know there's more. As soon as I stop the live stream, I'll be like, that was it. I had a good answer and I don't remember it. So I hope you forgive me for that, Tobias. Um, okay, let's see if we can get a couple more before we uh, shut things down. Truth, for, Truth in Life says, um, what would you say is the proper way to observe the Sabbath? Um, I, I don't think that we're required to observe the Sabbath, but I think the classic way of observing the Sabbath for a Jewish person is to go to synagogue 
and you gather there at the synagogue and you have um you have this you have a, a day of rest and a day of just spending time with your family honoring keeping the sabbath holy honoring the lord and, and gathering together so some people would say that we have to do this today i don't think that this is required um but if you did think it was required i would think don't work um gather with other believers you know like have a convocation of some kind and um uh, and just make it a holy day unto the Lord. Uh, there's nothing specific there about having to have like a Bible study that day. Although I think that's a good idea. Um, but that would be it. But I, but again, I don't think these things are required for us as Christians today. And let's get another question. Uh, number 23, uh, warrior of Yahusha says, hello, Mike, can you tell us how and when you know you were saved your personal experience? Basically. Thank you. Yeshua bless. Um, so when I was 12 years old, I had a friend invite me to church. Um, I was in junior high and I don't want to get into too much of my backstory, to be honest, because, um, it would make some people in some of my loved ones, uh, embarrassed. So I don't want to tell too much. So I'll say this. Um, uh, I, I was not a happy kid and, um, getting out of the home, was enough reason for me to go to church. So I went to church just to get out of the house. And, um, I heard it was there on, and I didn't go on Sundays for a while, but I went on weeknights to this youth ministry and I heard the gospel and I was utterly, utterly relieved when I found out I could be forgiven that it wasn't, I, I had this good person idea and I knew I wasn't good enough because I had heard the 10 commandments. To be honest, that was the reason I'd realized like, gosh, that I did that. I did that. And I wasn't good enough at the lying and stealing and everything else. Um, being selfish and angry and bitter and hateful and you name it. Um, and I heard the gospel of Jesus Christ and I was utterly relieved that I could be forgiven for my sins. And I put my faith in Christ and I experienced a relationship with God. And I remember just the sense that the Lord was with me when I was walking down the street and uh, praying and seeking God and just a slow process of my life, very slowly being sanctified and growing in the Lord. And I mean, very slowly over years. Um, but it, but it happened. It, it, I think that the initial time of my salvation was probably when I was about 12 years old. I don't know the date and I don't even know the moment, but I know I heard the gospel and I remember believing it. Um, so yeah, I can't point to like this black and white moment though for my life it was more, um, a season. Um, truth in life says, uh, what would you say is the, Oh, I already did that one. Skipping on down. Philip rushing says, what is your view of the Nicene and apostles creed? I did answer that one earlier. So um, you might want to go back, Philip. Um, Morgan Arnold says, is repentance a component of justification or a component of sanctification? Well, perhaps it's both. Um, I mean, you repent of sins to be, to be, to turn your life to Christ. Yet we have in scripture, Christians being asked to repent. Like in the letter to Ephesus, Christ tells them, repent and do the first works. And he, after commending them that they're basically Christians, right? They're real Christians in, in Ephesus, but they've in a sense left their first love their priorities are off. And so he tells them, repent and do the first works. So there's this call to repentance in first Corinthians. Um, Paul writes rebuking the Corinthian church. And in second Corinthians, he says that he's glad that the result of his letter was that they repented. And he says, because godly sorrow produces repentance, you know, not to be regretted. That was a good thing. So I would say both repentance seems to be both justification and sanctification thing. Um, Clara G says, how can we know our authority as believers over the evil spirits and sickness? 
I mean, in a sense, it's it's uh, it's Jesus's authority, not mine. So I rely upon His authority. I, I don't I don't rely upon any any of my authority, and I don't know. On the other hand, when He wants to, I I think evil spirits and sickness are two very different issues, in my opinion. Um, so while if if there's some kind of evil spirit or something like that, I have little experience with this, so I don't, I'm probably not the best person to answer. Um, but I would just treat them as two separate issues and I would rely upon the authority of Christ, not my authority, because it's all about him. It's all about his authority. Um, next question. David BCG says, hello, Mike, this might be off topic, but I see it as part of the Christian life. Should a Christian get involved in politics? How about opposing injustice from the state? Thinking about Martin Luther King Jr., um, I think absolutely Christians should get impo- involved in politics. I think we should talk about politics and deal with politics. I don't do it too much because it's not what I understand super well. And it's not the, f- I want to bring to you that the stuff that I think I can have the most benefit in. Right. Um, but I think that we should get involved. I think people should run for office. I think we should be salt and light in this world in all ways. Number one, the gospel, but in every way we can having an impact. Um, and so, yeah, yeah. Should we get involved in politics? Yeah. I mean, what kind of an environment would it be? If, um, if every time a person got saved, they, they, they just stopped being involved in politics. Like we were praying for a politician and he gets saved and then he goes, you know, I'm going to quit cause I'm a Christian now and we don't get involved in this stuff. It's like, <laughs> it would be terrible. Um, so yeah, the danger is that a lot of Christians feel like their political views are Christian views and sometimes they're not. Um, that of course is a danger and that has to do with being more biblically minded, uh, about all issues and yeah, there, there's a whole another issue going on there. Uh, Martin Luther King Jr. I haven't listened to too much of his stuff, to be honest. Probably like a lot of people, I've only heard a few things. I have a dream speech, things like that, you know. Um, so I don't have a whole lot of comments to make upon about him. Um, but uh, but I can tell you this. The driving force behind my involvement, at least in the issue of abortion, and my conversations with people is always my biblical mindset and my Christian values. And this absolutely influences my decisions in voting and the way I live my life. And it should. It should. And uh, though many people will get upset that Christians would be influenced by their worldview when they vote, but everyone's influenced by their worldview when they vote. Why pick on the Christian worldview? It's a good worldview. (laughs) Um, All right. Uh, Yuritza Rodriguez says, did Jesus go to hell when he died before he was resurrected? I'm not inclined to think he did. I think my my impression is, and Yuritza, this may not be fully satisfying, but here's the short answer, is that the parable Jesus told about uh, Hades and Abraham's bosom, uh, the place of where, where Lazarus went versus the rich man. I think that those are somewhat, at least somewhat accurate, maybe simplified, but accurate descriptions of things. And I think Jesus went at least, at least to, uh, declare truth at some point down there, as you read, uh, first Peter, second Peter, um, Jude, I think these are the passages that I would, I would appeal to. My understanding, I do not think he was tortured in hell. I think that is a weird doctrine. And I know some people do teach these things. I don't think you can establish that with scripture. And I don't know why they make a big deal about it. It's very odd to me uh, personally. Um, So uh, Brock Wright has a question. Why are books like Job in the Bible if we don't know the author or have much details about them? Um, Well, we, we, I take the Bible as a unit, as a whole, right? The, the, what I can do is I can pick scriptures and I can analyze them and see prophecy and I can see fulfilled the activities of Christ, fulfilling prophecy, other extra biblical prophecy fulfillments. Um, I can see all this stuff that proves that the Bible is inspired of God. As far as the books themselves, you, you know, I can say this. If you believe in Jesus, you should believe Job is inspired because it was in Jesus's Bible, right? 
Um, if you believe in Jesus, you should believe in the writings of his apostles because he declared, right? And the only thing we know is, we know about him is from them. But what he declared was that they would be led by the spirit in the things that they would proclaim later on. The early church received it. Um, I think these are some of the reasons. But in my series, Evidence for the Bible, I get into more detail about how we got the Old Testament. I actually have a whole video on that how we got the Old Testament. Then I have a video, a couple of videos on how we got the New Testament. So I get into a lot of detail there. But I'd say this, if you take Christianity as a whole as being true, then you need to take the Bible as being true. Because the alternative of, oh yes, certain books of the Bible I'm going to reject while I accept the rest, is to reject books Jesus accepted, is to reject people that Christ accepted and, and commissioned. And that would seem to be unchristian, uh, to put it briefly. Um... Joseph Worley says, when are you doing your biblical flat earth video? Oh, I don't know. Good question, man. Um, yeah, as usual, I bite off more than I can chew. <laughs> so I'm sorry, Joseph. If I if I announce off the top of my head what I think I might do, and then I get swamped, which is, seems like it keeps happening to me, then I'll just disappoint you guys. So I'll just say, for now, I, I don't know. It's on hold at the moment. But you'll all get notifications when it goes out for sure, I'm sure. So, okay, I'm going to take um, like two more questions. I'm so sorry for you guys. I know I've got like, 10 more questions in the queue here, but, um, but this is, this is a dilemma. I want to answer questions, but there, they, there's so many. So I've got to, you know, make those judgment calls. So, um, Edgar, uh, Edgardo, uh, Servin says, hi, Mike help here. Tithe, not for us as no Jews, just giving why. Okay. I, that obviously English isn't your first language. So you probably did better than me writing in a second language, but, but I think what you're saying here is, um, that you understand that I teach that the tithe is not required. 10% tithe means 10, right? It means 10%. That's what the word means. I don't think 10% giving is required for Christians today. It was, it was, it was under the old Testament law, which we're not under. Um, but I do think that giving is required. So I taught that very recently. Someone asked about it, um, just last week. And so I did get into that in last week's video on last Thursday, but I'll say this, um, specifically, we have no New Testament teaching that tells me I'm supposed to tithe. So if I'm going to tithe, it's going to be purely under Old Testament standards. So if you're going to tithe, Old Testament standards are that you tithe not to your church, but to the Levites, to the Levites in Israel. There are people who are Levites in Israel today. If they say their last name is like Cohen, for instance, they're Levites. So give your money to them. Yeah, already tithing doesn't work, does it? It's, it's, it's kind of shallow thinking when people are like, you have to tithe. Like, I think that that's a little bit shallow thinking. Um, the, the tithe wasn't even the only giving they did in Israel. They did a tithe, but there was lots of other giving as well. Um, so I think that what happens is we we realize we're supposed to give. We read in the New Testament, like you're supposed to give to support leaders. It says, um, let the elders who rule well among you be counted worthy of honor, especially especially those who labor in word and doctrine. And then it gives a specific illustration. It says like, you don't muzzle the ox as it treads out the grain. And the statement here is that the work, the worker is worthy of his wages. Um, as you don't, you don't, you don't make the, the oxen starve while it's plowing the field. So you don't make your leadership, your church leadership starve while they're doing the work of the ministry. So there's a principle there. Well, they're going to get funded through that. We also have the poor. We're supposed to be trying to take care of the poor, poor Christians in particular, right? Widows. And, you know, in first Timothy, he talks about there being widows that were being taken care of by the church. That was coming from the giving of the church. So giving's assumed, giving's encouraged, giving's desired. The 10% number is not a command to Christians. And, um, and I, I just think it doesn't fall under tithing at all. Uh, so I hope that helps. Um, tithing is, 
useful. I, you know, hey, give 10%. That, okay, I have, a, I have a set number I'm going to give, but that's not, it's not the requirement. Um, and I and honestly, if I was, if I was a, a, a billionaire making a billion dollars a year and I'm going to, to a church, do I feel like I'm supposed to give to that church 10% of a billion dollars a year? No, I don't think so. I'm going to give to my church and generously, but I also realize this amount of money, my church may not even be responsible with it. I might want to give to some other things. I might want to give more than 10%, but maybe not just to the church. Like I owe it to, no, I, I don't think it's that crude. I think we can be more thoughtful with our giving than that. Um, but if I'm going to church every week and I never give, then I'm basically making everybody else pay for me and for my, 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 my space and the AC and the Bibles and the, the, the leadership of the church and, you know, and, and that's, that's just mooching. <laughs> that's just mooching. If you're poor, we all get it. But if you're not, then you're a moocher, um, to put it bluntly. Okay. Um, I think this will be the, the last question for today. Um, question number 32. Casey Stockton says, Mike, I'm a young preacher being considered to pastor a church on, uh, of a different denomination. The belief set is close, but has several fairly large differences. How should I go about prayerfully considering this? Um, Casey, my, for what it's worth, just consider this as advice from a guy, a pastor to another pastor, right? Um, I would front load all these concerns before you take the job. I would say, look, here's my views on this. Here's my views on that. Um, how do you think we should handle this? Right? I don't want to, you can't teach things you don't believe. Like you can't do that. That's called lying, right? So you can't, you can avoid certain issues, but how long can you avoid those issues? Three, five, ten years down the road, are you still avoiding those issues? Or are you, you don't want to be considered to them be, to be deceitful. Like, bring me in and I'll act like I'll come in line with your doctrine. And then a few years later, I start trying to change the church. No, just be honest with them. Um, you know, I, I think complete honesty and transparency. And um, if it's if it's something God wants you to do, then I'll keep that door open. Um, so I'd say front load those issues, deal with them. Don't just say, I just need the job, I'll take it. And then and ignore that stuff. Um, have like gracious, honest answers for those questions before you before you take the job. It's just my counsel as a guy to a guy. You don't have to do what I say, but just um, something for you to think about. So I, I hope that this has been a blessing to you guys. I think that um, I don't want these live streams to be too long because I want them to have good replay value for people. I want it to really impact people's lives. But let me tell you a couple things before for those who are sticking around before you guys go. Um, I am for the first time ever. I've been doing this this ministry for. Um, a, a number of years online uh, really consistently for about three years. I've just been putting up content, content, content every week and I've upped my game about a year ago and, um, and all the hours I spend doing online ministry has taken a toll on my ability to be a pastor at my own church. I'm a, I'm the youth pastor, right? But I've, I also would handle DV counseling and I was a chaplain for the sheriff's department. I would do marriage counseling. I would handle just, you wear, you end up wearing lots of hats, right? In church. Well, I've taken off just about every hat except youth ministry, and I'm not as useful to my own fellowship anymore because I'm kind of transitioning to just pretty much full-time online ministry. And that's what's going on right now is uh, because of this transition, I won't be able to stay on staff at my church. So for me to continue doing this content and producing it in a way that's going to have value for you guys and impact your lives and hopefully spread the truth of Christ, I'm, I'm actually saying, hey, for the first time ever, I'm opening up for donations. Um, on my website, I put a little donate button there for you to support this ministry. If you want to feel free to consume the content, absolutely free. But if you want to support this ministry, it would be a blessing to me. You do not have to give me 10%. You don't have to give anything, 
But if you want to support this ministry, um, then that would be a blessing. And it would help me to just keep doing this. I have to gather, basically I have to gather all my own support so that I can continue doing what I'm doing and, uh, and hopefully do even more in the future. If we have enough support, I can maybe hire someone to make the website better. <laughs> that would be nice, you know, or do things like that. Um, that's all on my website, biblethinker.org. I think I might've put a link in the video description or I will, if I haven't, I will just, it'll be there. I'm going to try and get in the habit of doing that. Um, there will be accountability with this giving. Um, I won't be the only one looking at it, that kind of thing. It, it's going to go through through the church so that there's accountability with it. Um, also, I have a podcast, if you didn't know this. It's on like iTunes and Stitcher and all that. You're welcome to check out the podcast. And um, uh, if you want to give it a rating, like a, a positive rating, that, that helps. It's got like 60 ratings so far, but that really helps more people see that information. So the goal here is just I want to help people learn to think biblically about everything. Usually I'm not doing Q&A. This is occasional. Generally, I'm preparing thoughtful content and trying to basically prepare teaching curriculum to help people learn to think biblically about everything, answering skeptics objections, helping Christians to get grounded, helping people who've come out of weird groups, let's be honest, and sometimes really watered down church environments when it comes to scripture. And then this is going to bolster you up. You could even stay in those, some of those environments, not all of them, but some of them you could stay in and you can become the force for making other people more biblical because of the training and equipping you're getting through this ministry. Um, so hopefully that, this is a blessing to you guys. I really appreciate you, your time and your gifts that will um, enable this ministry to keep going, God willing. So um, yeah, thank you guys so much. Lord bless you. And I'll see you uh, next Monday, my agenda is to put out a video on the um, the connections between Jesus and the seven feasts of Israel. Really neat stuff. And then next Tuesday, I'm going to try to have a video prepared related to the resurrection of Jesus, some evidence-based stuff that connects to the topic of the resurrection. So uh, that stuff will all be coming up. Yep, I think that's about it. Thanks to the, the mods, the new mods that are in the live chat. I really appreciate you guys being there and your time and your help to make that a good, healthy environment. And AJ, sending me these questions. You guys are... Your blessing. You encourage me. All right. Thanks.